but let's go back to John chapter 6 as we're going to just look briefly for a few minutes into the Word of God as we come to the table of the Lord. And uh, last week we looked at probably the most famous story or account in the Bible in, in regards to the New Testament being Jesus feeding the 5,000. This week is also a very familiar, very famous event that happens in the lives of people. And we're going to look at an incident in the lives of the disciples. Because this really seems a lot about the disciples because we're dealing with the fact that Jesus walks on the water. But a lot of the narrative has to do with the fact that the disciples are in this boat in the midst of a storm and they are fearing for their lives. And that's a lot of what the verses take up. But I don't want you to ever forget that in spite of the fact that so much of the verses deal with that, John wants us to know that everything about this is about Jesus. Everything. His entire gospel is really a declaration to know Jesus. But if last week's incident of the feeding of the 5,000 was famous and well-known, I think the disciples in a boat on a lake struggling, fearing for their lives, feeling like they have done everything they can to survive and don't know if they're going to make it, is likely the event that we can most relate as human beings and as people. I know I do that. You see, much of the Bible with its traditions and the culture can tempt us to tune out or tempt us to assume, well, that was good for them. I'm glad, Pastor Steve, that you're so enamored with this book that's two to three to 4,000 years old. But, you know, what has any of that got to do with us today in 2018, quite frankly? You don't know what my life is like. I mean, think of how different the times were. I just said to you to open your Bibles or turn them on. I had a chance a little while ago to go out to, uh, I think it's Heart's Desire, Heart's Content. It's one of the three hearts that are out there around the cove where they have the, uh, the, the museum where transatlantic signals would come and stop there before they would be then passed on to New York City. And you go into this museum, and it's literally two or three floors of copper wire. And I have a picture of myself with my iPhone in front of this, and I have more technology in my iPhone than's in that entire museum for how they needed all of that just to send a signal off to New York. So think about what that meant back 2,000 years. When we think about travel, on this Friday I'll get on a plane and in a couple of hours I'll be in South Carolina. If that was 100 or 150 years ago and you said that you were here in St. Charles, Newfoundland saying I'm going to go to South Carolina, you'd start that trip and hopefully get there in a couple, three weeks. That was the way it was. And so we can be tempted to think, well, the Bible was back then. This is now, especially with our progressive mindset. But as you go to Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 6, looking at verses 16 to 21, let me just say this phrase that I think many of you have heard. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. You see, friends, listen to me. People are people. Issues are issues. Whether it was the first century or the 21st century, politics is politics. Putting a meal on the table is just important to us as it was to them. Marriage or understanding it, families, parenting, jobs, survival, living paycheck to paycheck, even worse, fame, fortune, a better life, looking for some pleasure, looking for some ease, mental illness, health scares, to buy a home, to rent a home, to have a home, who you can trust, 
friendships. First century, 21st century, we're still facing the exact same issues today as they were then, and we're still grappling with another big issue. And if you take notes, here it is, what to do or how to respond to Jesus. What to do or how to respond to Jesus. You guys are wrestling with that in the 21st century, just like the disciples did and the crowd did in the first century. Now, at the risk of being a broken record, John wants us to come to some conclusions in this study, all right? That's what he tells us in John chapter 20. I'm going to say this. I was told in my seminary class that just when I get sick of saying it, you'll start to get it, okay? So I'm not sick of saying it yet. So I'm hoping that some of you maybe have got it and some of you still haven't got it. But here's John's purpose statement for this gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs. Now notice this. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here is the result of that. And that by believing, by believing you may have life in his name. So John wants you and I to know that what we're about to look at in John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, Jesus walking on the water is a sign. He has deliberately chosen this particular event out of a smorgasbord of events he could have chosen. He chooses seven, and he wants us to do this. In fact, all of the Gospel of John is laid out around these seven signs, and as we're going to see coming up, Seven other things in the Gospel of John, seven I am statements by Jesus. Jesus is going to say seven times in this Gospel, I am something. And to this point, already in John chapter 6, now we're at our fifth sign. Five of the seven come within those first six chapters. And here they are, 12 disciples. You know a little bit about them? They're 12 lowly outcasts, misfits. They're socially frowned upon, struggling to live. And right now on this event, they're in a real fight. They're out on the Sea of Galilee. The storm has swooped up. They've been rowing all night long. They've barely gotten three, three and a half miles. Even though four of them are fishermen, they've probably faced this. This was a tough, rough, and it seemed like it might get the best of them. But then Jesus comes. Jesus comes. And today we're going to see just how passionate And just how urgent and just how zealous Jesus is to come to you and help develop you. No matter where you're at in life, no matter what you're facing in life. (coughs) What I want you to learn, if you're a part of our church or you come and you listen to me preach, I want you to get this more than anything. Salvation isn't a one-time event. Don't think of your salvation in the past tense. Salvation is something God does, something God is doing, and something God will do in your life. Jesus didn't save you and say, well, there you go. I've done my part, all right? Now, you go figure it out. That's not what Jesus did. He doesn't say, you go figure it out, and hopefully I'll see you at the end. But you know what? Many people live their lives like that, as if Jesus came and found them, gave them something, and now they exercise all kinds of energy (coughs) trying to figure it out hoping to make it to the end. But friends, listen to me. As we come to the table of the Lord, be encouraged this morning. Can I tell you something? Jesus saves us and stays with us and never leaves us, ever. 
no matter what you're facing today. <coughs> but the flip side of this is Jesus didn't save you and say, there, the job's done. He saves you to work in your life and through your life, and he's going to refine you and strengthen your relationship with him. And here's the question. How do you respond to the everyday trials of life that are all meant to make you more like Christ? So I want you to put your life in perspective. Because some of you right now, if I took a poll, if I gave you all a sheet of paper and just said, tell me what your life is like right now, I would get probably as many answers as there are people. Some of you would say, life is great. Some of you would say, life is not so great. Some of you would say, life is hard. Some of you would say, I don't understand my life. Some of you would say, I don't know what to do with what I'm facing. I want you to see the world and those hard circumstances as Jesus is still here in your life. Because we're going to see in John 6, 16 to 21, there are three ways you can look at life. You can say, you know what, Jesus isn't here and I'm alone. Pastor Steve, you can talk till the cows come home. You don't understand. I'm all alone. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Some of you might say, I think I see Jesus. I think I see Jesus in my life, but I'm not sure. I'm afraid to actually believe it, or I'm scared that if I do, it won't come out the way I want it. And then others will see, no, no, Jesus is a part of my life. He's here with me. And I want you to understand that we're going to see that when life is hard, here's the title of my sermon. Jesus is miraculous. When life is hard, Jesus is miraculous. In fact, I believe that's why I'm so against the prosperity gospel. You heard me say it last week. I'm so against country music Jesus. Come to Jesus and you get everything back. I'm so against the idea that if you come to Jesus, you, you know, your life is just sunshine and roses and everything's right. Because everybody knows that's not true. But imagine if I said to you, when you come to Jesus, no matter what your circumstances are like in life, you will find peace and joy and understanding and perspective. And you can face whatever junk the world wants to throw at you, and it will never overcome you, no matter how bad those circumstances are. That will change your life. And that's what we see here. Let's look at our passage, John 6, starting in verse 16. John tells us after he fed the 5,000 men, so somewhere between 15, maybe in 20,000 men, women, and children, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. That word sea there means to the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a freshwater lake, okay? They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. So the evening came, so dusk was coming in. They get into the boat, they start rowing. Now it's dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. That's just five verses. Five verses. Now, to understand all of the background of this, if you ever get a chance, read Matthew chapter 14 or Mark chapter 6. Those are the parallel passages with John of Jesus walking on the water. Matthew fills out some of the events, especially giving us that whole interplay between Peter when they see him, 
and they think he's a ghost, and he says, Lord, if it's really you, let me get out of the boat and walk to you. And Peter walks on water. Then he starts looking at the waves, and he starts to sink. So hang on to that. And then we find out in Mark chapter 6 other parts of this. And so all three of them give you a great understanding. But all of them, including Matthew and Mark, tell us that Jesus made the disciples do this. This is a very important thing because my number one point for you this morning, life when Jesus is not present. What do you do when you are part of, in a phase of life and it feels like Jesus isn't here? And I know you have felt like this. I have felt like this. Where you're living your life and you're like, I know what I'm supposed to mentally think, but the truth is I don't sense that Jesus is with me. There's no way Jesus would let this happen to me. And what you've got to realize is in this event, according to Matthew 14, according to Mark 6, according to John, Jesus tells them, you get in the boat. You do this. This is their first great fact of this story. For it means that Jesus himself sent them into this boat across this lake, knowing full well what was going to happen. Jesus planned this. He put them in the boat. He gave them the orders where to go. He was the one who would stay behind and dismiss the crowds, according to Matthew 14. And then he would go up into a mountain to pray, according to Mark. And the disciples get in the boat. And in fact, if you read the gospel account in Mark, they paddle over to Bethesda, and that's where they wait for Jesus. Because you see, in our part, it was, it was becoming evening, and then it says, and then when it was dark. So in the evening, they leave where they're at, they paddle over to Bethesda. Jesus probably says, I'll meet you there. Then it starts to get dark, no Jesus. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they're all fishermen. They can sense there's a storm brewing, and so they decide, we better get to Capernaum. And he doesn't come, and so they push on ahead and look at it in verse 17 of chapter 6. But now it's dark, and Jesus hasn't joined them. So they push on, and they must have expected, well, Jesus will just meet us in Capernaum, or he'll come on a boat in the morning, whatever will happen, he'll follow them. And they likely saw and knew the weather was coming in because these guys had lived their lives, at least four of them, on this lake. But let's read between the lines for a minute. What do you think it was like for them? If you had seen Jesus feed 15 to 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two pieces or two rations of pickled fish to the point where everyone ate to their satisfaction and then they collected 12 baskets full of other stuff, you don't think you'd be talking about that throughout the day and the next night? Especially when we know that earlier, back in verse uh, 15, that this so impressed the crowd that they literally wanted to take Jesus by force and make him the king. And so they, they're probably talking about it, and they're probably expecting, listen, let's get to Capernaum. Jesus told us, this, listen, Israel is waking up. They want Jesus to be the king. Look at what he's done. In fact, Mark tells us very bluntly that the disciples didn't get it. In Mark chapter 6, it says, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. And here's why. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So they, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. Is it possible that the disciples, like the crowd, were thinking about the miracles, but not seeing the signs? See, John said that he had given us these, these things as a sign. But everybody else is seeing them as miracles. You think about these five signs. Remember back in chapter 2, he turned water into wine? And not just any wine. 
great wine, wine that impressed the crowd, where the host goes to him and, and, and the, the bridegroom says, why did you leave the best wine to last? And you remember that he healed the nobleman's son when the son wasn't even there. The nobleman shows up and says, my son is dying. And Jesus says, go, your faith has made your son whole. Remember, he goes down and he meets his servants and they tell him, your son is healed. And he says, when did my son get healed? And they tell him the time and it was right when Jesus said, your son is healed. Then remember the pool of Bethesda, the guy who'd been laying there for 38 years, hoping for a miracle, hoping that superstition would heal him and that that pool would move and somehow he could roll or flop down in it and he would be healed and never did. And Jesus heals him in a second. And now the feeding of the 5,000. And so these four signs have happened. And the disciples are going, look, the nation wants to make him king. He's able to do things. He's more satisfying. He heals. He creates out of nothing. And here they are now, though, despite all of this, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the fight of their lives, wondering, really? All of that for this? And think about it. Jesus put them there. Jesus put them there. Can I ask you right now, just think about your life. Have you ever had an extreme high followed very closely by an extreme low? Where you just thought, man, life is good. Only to get up and it was a manic Monday that just gutted you like you've never been gutted before. And isn't it amazing? that often that happens at the hands of someone you least expected it to happen. You just didn't see it coming. You were so wrapped up in the euphoria of that mountaintop experience, and all of a sudden, <coughs> you're now in the valley of defeat and despair. From the mountaintop of participating in the feeding of the multitudes, the disciples descend to the valley of experiencing a violent storm, storm as they try to cross the Sea of Galilee. And as Mark 6 tells us, all this was happening under the watchful eye of Jesus. So consider these guys. They feel alone. Life when Jesus isn't there. But in Mark 6 it says, And he, Jesus, saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. Now read between the lines of this. They are fighting this headwind. They're rowing and rowing, rowing. Likely their backs are to the wind. Probably Peter is in charge telling the guys to row. They're taking shifts. And they've been rowing for hours. And they've gone three, three and a half miles. And Jesus comes walking on the water. And not just that Jesus is walking on the water. This whole thing is unaffecting him so much by just trotting along. It looks like he's just going to pass the boat by. They're struggling. They're afraid. They're tired. And here comes Jesus. I love Paul Tripp. He explains obedience to Christ for believers like this. Obedience is the willing surrender of your heart to the commands of God. But it's never what you do to earn his acceptance. They are in the fight of their lives. They feel alone. And Jesus put them there. These men obey these are experienced fishermen. They've grown up on this lake. They know it inside and out. And they know what can happen. And I'm sure that maybe Peter and John locked eyes. And maybe Andrew and Philip locked eyes. And they said, this is bad. This one might do us in. 
You've got to understand that the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. And the way the Judean wilderness works, headwinds will come down through the valley and swoop down over the Sea of Galilee. And in a matter of minutes can turn that lake into just what looks like it's just being beat it like you'd beat mashed potatoes. And they're in a little fishing boat rowing and this thing is just lopping and lopping and jerking and the wind swirls so it's hard to know what direction to get the wind in and so it looks like you always row into the wind but the wind direction changes so much and so they're doing this and they're going around in circles but I want you to notice that in John's gospel in 16 to 21 John doesn't want you to see the disciples and their struggle it's not the predicament that they in they're in John wants you to focus on how Jesus can get to them. From their perspective, they feel alone. Life when Jesus isn't here. I'm alone. I'm afraid. I'm tired. From their perspective, they're all alone. But Mark tells us Jesus is watching them the whole time. His eyes are never off them. And in fact, he's got a plan. In fact, he knows what the end will be. And so then, secondly, what is life like when you see Jesus coming? See, there's a perspective of how every one of you live life. You will make the decision, I'm going to live my life as if Jesus isn't here. And that's a very despairing way to live life. But many of you in here, I think, will live life going, well, Jesus might be here. Jesus might be a part of my life. You have those hot and cold moments. You see, they battled this storm and this sea for hours. They've rode and rode. They've likely took breaks. They've started at it again. And for all their <laughs> efforts, three to four miles. In fact, if you watch this, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus came walking on the water in the fourth watch. The fourth watch, according to Jewish time, was somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. But they left at supper time. They started paddling just after dark. They've been rowing for six to nine hours rowing and rowing and rowing in the middle of the lake. And you know what that's like? Have you ever been in a storm? Have you ever gone across? Once in my life, I was going across from North Sydney to Port of Basque, and we got to North Sydney, and I could see North Sydney, but it was real windy, and so they had to weigh anchor, and we had to bob there until the seas calmed down. Do you know what it's like when I, I mean, I get seasick when the sea is glass, let alone when there's 25, 30-foot waves and the boat is just doing this and then flopping from this and I can see the shore and I can't get there. And people are just losing it everywhere. So it's not just the up and down. There's the smells. There's that vomity diesel smell. I mean, it's just gross. And you can see the shore. And have you ever been like that in life? When you can see where you want to go and you can't get there. In fact, is that not so much more frustrating than when you actually feel like you're in the middle of the ocean? It would have been easier for me bobbing up and down if I couldn't see the shore. It was frustrating that I could see where I needed to go and I couldn't get there. And here are these guys. They know the shore is there. They know their destination is really not that far away. And yet it feels like it might as well have been a million miles away. Because they're fighting and they're struggling. But at the height of their fatigue, maybe on the cusp of giving up, on the verge of absolute despair, Jesus comes. He comes. Jesus comes. 
And Matthew and Mark and Luke fill the picture in for us. They're afraid but hopeful. They are amazed but doubtful. And notice again in our passage, their circumstances don't change. There's Jesus. Now they're terrified and hopeful. They think he's a ghost according to Matthew and Mark. Wouldn't you? I mean, it's not every day someone walks on water. I mean, let's be honest. If you're in the middle of a storm and you feel like you're the only one there and all of a sudden there's this dark shadow and he's walking along, what would you think? This is the stuff that X-Files episodes are made of. I mean, let's be honest, right? You know, and you're allowed to laugh, all right? The Bible is full of a sense of humor. They thought he was a ghost. Maybe it was ghost stories. I don't know. Maybe it was, you know, um, strange but true. Maybe whatever the, you know, it was an episode of the Twilight Zone or something like that and, and all this. And here is Jesus and they, they want to believe but they're terrified. But their, their circumstances never change. Jesus is present, but the storm still rages. The waves still toss. The wind still blows. But now Jesus in, is there. And in fact, Jesus was moving faster than they are, and they actually feared he would walk right by them. Now, Matthew tells us that when Jesus says, it is I, do not be afraid, Peter's still kind of like, if it's really you, let me get out of the boat and walk to you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the one place where I think Peter's an idiot. Like there's not any form of my life that I can think, yeah, that's what I would do. I'd go, Jesus, let me hop out and I'll walk to you as well. I know what happens to me when I get in water. I sink. That's what happens. And yet Peter is so desperate to have Jesus in his life, he is willing to risk death to be near him, to have him there. And they're frightened. They're scared. Now listen, have you been there? Afraid? Anxious? Feeling overwhelmed? You want to believe Jesus is there, that he hears you, but you don't know, is it, is it true? Walking through your hard time, desperate, dealing with something, and then Jesus appears and you feel like, no, nah, I can't be. Or that scares me. You know, how many times, you know, I use this in, in my counseling. I find that uh, human beings, when we get used to a scary situation, we'd rather the hell we know than the hell we don't know. We get dealing with life, and we hate it, but at least I know what I'm dealing with. I know tomorrow morning this is what my life's going to be, and then Jesus kind of comes into your life, and he says, now, follow me, trust me, I, and then you're like, well, <laughs> it sounds good, but I don't know because I don't know what's going to happen then tomorrow morning. I, I don't like my life now, but at least I know what's going to happen, and I've prepared myself for it, and then Jesus comes into your life, and notice what he says in verse 20, it is I do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. I don't know about you, but is there any emotion, any temptation, any thought process that attacks us more than that of fear? I'm afraid. We fear all the time, don't we? What we know, sometimes we're afraid of what we know. Then we're afraid of what we don't know. We fear the worst. We fear the past. We fear our present. We fear the future. We fear for our lives. Parents, we fear for our kids. 
If you're married or not married, sometimes you can fear for your marriage or for the destruction of your marriage. We fear people. We fear our bosses. We fear for our job. We fear our employees. We fear sickness. We fear loss. Sometimes we're afraid of our own shame or embarrassment. We fear failure. We struggle with fear. I don't know if you know this, but the number one thing in the Bible in regards to the command to do something is fear not. And you guess what? Now, this is ironic. You know how many times it's in the Bible? 365 times. It's like, here's one fear not for every day of the year. 365 times in your Bible, it will tell you to fear not. Fear not. Don't let your heart be troubled, Jesus would say. Be not afraid. All of these statements of Jesus. John Newton, that great famed author of Amazing Grace, who experienced his own storm at sea, his testimony is that's when he came to Jesus, wrote this, to know Jesus is the shortest description of trust grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. To know him perfectly is eternal life. So life when Jesus isn't there, life when Jesus might be there. See, this is the lesson that the disciples are being asked to learn. They're being refined into the image of God. How? Through trial and testing. They are being taught what is truly important. Who is truly important? They're enamored with the man who can turn water into wine who can heal people. They love the fact that the crowd wants to make him king. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're missing it. And yet in the midst of their trial, J.C. Ryle says, our Lord's tenderness for his disciples and feelings appear beautifully here. No sooner does he see fear than he proceeds to calm it. He assures them that the figure they see walking on the deep is no spirit or ghost or enemy or object of dread. It is their beloved master. Is it any wonder that years later, the Apostle John, the fisherman that was in this boat at the time and experienced this, would later write in 1 John chapter 4 these words, By this is love perfected with us, so that we have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Notice what he says, we love because he first loved us. Jesus calms their fear. And here's the proof, number three, and finally, life when Jesus is with you. So you can have a perspective. My life, if Jesus is not here, I am tired, I am fatigued, I am tempted to be bitter, I'm confused, I have bouts of anger and then, and then victimology, but then there's life when Jesus might be there. But what is life like when Jesus is with you? Did you notice at the end of our passage? Notice verse 20 and 21. Now, not the end of verse 21. Notice rather the beginning of verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21. Notice what he says. No, all right? And Jesus was walking on the sea, coming to the boat, verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. Now, they've been calmed. Their their fears have been been laid aside. They bring him into the boat and they're glad to have him there. But the storm still rages. And you can get the more of the background of that in Matthew and Mark. Even though Jesus is now in the boat with them, they're still in the storm. Their circumstances didn't change. The storm still rages. The trial is still present. But now they know Jesus is with them. 
Now they know. Matthew puts it like this. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. That's him and Peter. And those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. According to Mark, they went from hard-heartedness. Matthew tells us they went from fear, from doubt and despair to utter astonishment and worship. And in the coming weeks, as we will see, we're going to get how profound this is. When you come to the end of chapter 6, after Jesus exposes what a false disciple looks like, he'll look at his disciples and say to the 12, do you want to go his way as well? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, when Jesus is with you, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You just trust him. Paul Tripp again says this. Why would you give way to fear when everything that would cause you to be afraid is under the careful control of your sovereign savior of wisdom, power, grace, and love? Why would you ever fear? And so... As we come to the table of the Lord this morning, what do you take away from this passage? What do you take away from this passage? Well, number one, if you're writing this down, take this. Jesus makes us like him by refining us into his image. Do you want to be like Christ? Do you want to have him in your life? Don't wish your life to be perfect. Wish to have Jesus in your life. Remember, Jesus put these guys in this boat, knowing full well what lay ahead of them. Jesus knows what has just happened. He knows that the crowds seemingly love for him might well have been a temptation for his disciples. And as we're going to see in the coming weeks, the crowd will make another appearance and will face a trial of their own far smaller than this, and they will turn their backs on Jesus. But we have a great example of this. Do you remember Job? How many of you have heard of Job in the Old Testament? Put your hands up. A lot of you have, right? Job, you ever you heard these cliches? You're a Job's comforter. You're all these things. Job is the one who does everything right, and Satan comes and says, listen, if you take this and this and this away from him, he'll stop following you. So Satan takes all of his possessions, kills his family, takes his health, his wife turns on him. But you know what Job says in Job 23, verse 8? Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. See, Job just admitted, there's times in my life I don't feel like Jesus is there, but I know he is. And I trust him. I read this illustration that hopefully helps you about a silversmith. The story goes of this silversmith and this young teenage boy is watching this silversmith look and he goes over to the pot of silver and he looks into it and he scrapes off a bit of the dross that is collected and then he returns to his work. And then he goes back and he finds that the silver is there again. He scrapes off a little more and he goes back to his work. And then he goes and he finds that the silver is ready and he begins to form it. And the young teenager can't understand. And so he says to the silversmith, why do you constantly look into the silver? And the silversmith answers him, I look into the silver until I find that the dross is all gone and the silver is purified. And I know when the dross is gone because I can see myself reflected in the silver as in a fine mirror. 
that's God at work in your life. Those trials are refining you. They're drawing out that dross and Jesus scrapes some more off until that time when he can look in you and see himself reflected. Remember what David said? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That is not a psalm for funerals. That's the psalm of the living. David says, I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I don't fear evil. Why? Because you're with me and your rod and they staff, they comfort me. In Psalm 139, David would explain himself further. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Folks, listen, you can never be anywhere. You can never go through anything where Jesus isn't there with you. Doesn't matter. What did Daniel say when facing the lion's den? He says to the king, listen, God was with me. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar when they're facing the fiery furnace? Have you ever read these words in Daniel 3? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Why? If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that about these three guys. They're like, listen, Jesus is with us. Whether we live or we die, you don't get to rule us because we trust Jesus. But Jesus gives us the ultimate example to follow. In Hebrews chapter 13, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what men do to me. And so from the youngest of you to the oldest, are you here this morning and you're a little tired with life? You're frustrated? You're afraid? Are you dealing with some betrayal? Are you lonely? Are you hurting? Are you asking questions? Would you rather not walk through what you're facing right now? I don't know about you. I don't know if I've told you this, but I have faced times like this. There was a time not too long ago in my last ministry where things weren't going the way I had planned them to go. And I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. My faith was small. I was in the boat rowing and the storm was raging and Jesus seemed a million miles away. My boys were going through a rough time, so parenting was rough. Pastoring was tough. Finances were tight. People didn't like me. The church I loved was pushing against me. I felt betrayed. I felt misunderstood. I felt taken for granted. I felt like I was being used. I had my Peter moment. I just said, the heck with it all. I'm going fishing. I'm done. By God's grace, I ended up in a car with a very, very dear friend and a confidant. And I was whining away. I mean, I was just playing the fiddle. I was whining to him about how bad my life was and how terrible everything was and how terrible everybody was. And we were driving along this beautiful river in New Brunswick going through these covered bridges and the season was about spring and all these sights and smells and, and I was really loving my surroundings and I was finally, I had someone who was letting me get it all out. It was great therapy. 
And then he looked at me and he said something to me that, that to this day still pins my ear back. And this was the question he said to me. Why should you get what Jesus never got or expected? I was like, oh. Because you see, Jesus was betrayed. Jesus had things pushed back against him. I whine for peace and I long for an easy life. I desperately want everything to go my way and my time. I want everyone to like me and agree with me and go along with me. Yet I had completely forgotten that Jesus walked my road for me before me. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Lord, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not your will but my will. Not my will but your will be done. Right? And that's why in Hebrews 4 has become so important to me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Church, listen to me. A.W. Tozer is right. You can't walk with the Holy Ghost unless we agree to walk the way he walks and go in the direction he's going. That's just it. And friends, the same Jesus who said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same Jesus who told the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, also said, go and sin no more. It's the same Jesus who said, deny yourself, follow me, take up your cross. My pastor friend Scott Saul said it like this, if your hope is anchored in Jesus, the worst case future scenario for you is resurrection and everlasting life. You see, you know what a broken marriage can't take from you is the love of Jesus. You know what a rebellious child can't take from you? A loving eternal Jesus. You know what cancer can't take from you? The hope of eternal life. You know what bad finances can't rob you of? The fact that you're accepted in Jesus Christ and your identity. No matter what struggle you face, no matter what your storm is, Jesus is here. And I love this. Again, A.W. Tozer put it so well. When I understand that everything happening to me is making me to be more like Christ, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. It resolves a great deal of anxiety. So very practically as we come to the table of the Lord, let me give this to you in four little points. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. It'll be the next slide and be my last one. In difficult moments, seek God. In quiet moments, worship God. In unexplainable moments, trust God. And in every moment, thank God. See Jesus. If you live life acting as if he's not with you, I'm going to tell you it's going to be a hard life. If you live your life, well, he might be with me, your life is going to be a roller coaster. But if you live life, he's with me. I promise you this. Your circumstances may not change, but your perspective will. And your trust will grow. And you'll have meaning and purpose. Folks, listen. Hollywood got it wrong. Jack Nicholson isn't right. This life is not as good as it gets. There's a better life coming. This life is preparation. It's previews of coming attractions of something that's eternal. 
Embrace that. That's what this is all about. Let's pray as our elders come and we participate in the table of the Lord. Father God, I thank you for the glorious opportunity to talk about you, to read your word, and to tell my friends and my family and visitors that are friends that Jesus is so much better. Father, that no matter what we face, you will walk this road with us. And now, Lord, as we participate in the table of the Lord, may we draw focus and attention in the fact that this is proof that these words I have said are true. You never leave us. You never forsake us. And I pray that everybody here, no matter what their circumstance in life is, that they would know you as Savior and they would trust you as Lord. And may this table excite us all. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.